0: If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. And if you are reading Romans as we work our way through it each Sunday morning as a family, then you're already familiar with this text from chapter 2 that was just read for you. Further, maybe you experienced some of the challenge that I experienced this week, namely, that when you dig into this text even a little, it seems to immediately reward you with tangles. That's how I felt this last week. Have you ever gone fishing, had a fishing tackle box? And you know how invariably, it just somehow magically you open up that those two sections of the box and you see in the bottom and there's all this fishing line that has gotten like in the lures or just, it's like just one big tangled mess and you start to try and pull here and pull there and get it untangled and then maybe eventually decide, you know what, I'm just going to throw it all the way and go to the fishing store and start over. Maybe someone has done that before. And in the same way, sometimes we want to give up on a text because it's all, tangled like that. It seems like a tangle and it's just easier to move on. There was a point this week where I decided that I didn't like expository preaching so much because you have to work your way through a text. I just thought it'd be so much nicer to say, you know what, let's just go to Genesis 3 this morning. But there's also something that I discovered again this week about Bible study. My joy Usually, in discovering something in the text is directly proportional to the difficulty it took to get me there. Does that make sense? Isn't that often how it is? Like something that is really hard and difficult, like once we accomplish it or achieve it, there's just so much joy that we feel in having done that. So I want to just encourage you don't give up when texts are hard. Keep working. Keep praying. Keep asking God's help. For as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, seven, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And the moment of understanding this text, that moment of relief, frankly, did not come until Wednesday afternoon. After two and a half days of studying and meditating, and praying, and when it did, it was like a dam breaking, free with waters of understanding, gushing forth by the grace of the Holy Spirit, sweeping away what had been for two days a fog of confusion around Romans chapter two, and I felt like the Holy Spirit just essentially took me by kind of the scruff of the neck, the back of my shirt, and just pulled me back and said, Matthew, you got to look at the bigger picture here in order to understand the little bits that I've inspired Paul to write and just what is that bigger picture. As I said a few weeks ago, what we presently have, what we've been setting our focus on is Paul's extended argument from chapter one, verse 18, all the way to chapter three, verse 20. And the thing that I discovered anew this week is that that whole section of text is actually one ginormous parenthetical statement. It's a parenthesis in Paul's argument. You can see it, let me show you how this is true. Look at Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed From faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So, see that there in 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then in 118, he immediately switches from talking about the righteousness of God being revealed to God's wrath being revealed, which he does. He makes that argument all the way to chapter 3, verse 21, where he then says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. So it's almost as if he just kind of stops himself in that thought. What he wanted to talk about was the righteousness of God being revealed, the good news of the power of God to save Jews and Gentiles and make them righteous by the gift of faith. And he interrupts himself with this parenthesis from 118 to 320. So why does Paul do this? Because, I think, Paul had to make sure that he dealt with the issue that the righteousness of God itself raises, the problem that the righteousness of God reveals as it is being revealed. And what is that problem? It is the unrighteousness, the unrighteousness of all humanity. Humanity. You see, the bright sunshine of the rightness of God reveals the shadowy darkness of the wrongness of humanity. And so the moment that Paul brings up God's righteousness, he immediately realizes he needs to pause and really press into this problem of humanity's unrighteousness. He has to prove in no uncertain terms that the whole world is accountable before God. Chapter 3, verse 19, that all human beings are guilty before God because all are under sin. Chapter 3, verse 9, further that not one person in all of humanity can be made right by observing the law. Because, chapter 3, verse 20, no one will be justified in God's sight by works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. In other words, part of the function of the law is to expose and condemn our sin and bring us on our knees to the end of ourselves. Because it's only when we're brought to the end of ourselves that we're ready to to hear the justifying, remarkable, good news of the work of God that he's done through Jesus, his son. That we are justified by him and not ourselves because we cannot do this by ourselves. This rescue cannot come from within us. It must come from outside of us. So it is that Paul must show us, every one of us, the entirety of humanity, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to the pagan moralizer and the self-righteous religious that we are, every one of us, without excuse before God. Chapter 1, verse 20. And so Paul's argument contained in one long parenthetical statement to which we now turn begins with the guilt of the Gentile world. So did you get a service guide when you came in this morning? I would encourage you to pull that out right now because this argument is fairly complex. So I've put an outline of Paul's argument and this sermon in that service guide so you can see where we're going as we're going and allow you to take some notes if you need to or want to. We begin in chapter one, verses 18 to 32, that where Paul argues, because what he wants us to see now, right? So here's the banner. All humanity is without excuse. He's now proving that. It's, it's almost as if he's in court and he's bringing evidence. And argumentation. In 118 to 32, we find a detailed description of the unrighteousness and godlessness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 118. Further, that God is, and that He is the standard of rightness. And as a result, all of Gentiles, all their guilt, these who are godless and unrighteous, is clear, and wrath is therefore justified. To which the objection could be raised, but how can you condemn us and pour out your wrath, God? That's not right, because I don't see any proof of a right and righteous God. Paul argues in response, no, you are without excuse, because the creation itself testifies to the attributes and reality of God that you have ignored and rejected. Verses 18 to 21 of chapter 1. Next, Paul wants us to see that pagan moralizers are without excuse. Ah, says the pagan moralizer, the atheist and irreligious person who yet wants to claim a certain rightness and goodness, and raises this objection to Paul. But I'm not like those kinds of people that you are describing godless, unrighteous, immoral, and debased. I am better than that. I have standards, I am a good person. To which God, by His Spirit, through Paul, responds in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. No, you are not. You do the same things as them, actually, so you are also without excuse, you hypocrite. But know this, if you would have ears to hear the good news is that I am kind and restrained and patient, which is meant to give you space to repent, do not despise this grace, but turn from your hypocrisy and trust And believe in me. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul transitions toward Jew and Gentile separation because of the law. He begins a transition from the world as a whole to two separate categories that all of the world falls into. One of these two categories, Jew and non-Jew or Gentile, if you will. You see that in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He raises those categories. And a major factor in what separates Jews and Gentiles is the giving of the law to the Jews, which revealed the standard for living that God expected and what to do when you fall, fall short of that standard, all of which could lead to the possibility that Jews think that they're better than Gentiles because they have the law, something that the Gentiles don't have. However, Paul makes it clear in chapter 2, verse 11, that God shows no favoritism to these two parts of humanity. And Paul knows that even bringing this up, God plays no favorite, cracks the door for yet another objection to the wrath of God from Gentiles who were not given the law in the way that the Jews were. So here's their objection If you're going to judge me, God, I have to know what I'm being judged against. And since you haven't done that, since you haven't shown me the standard, I have an excuse. I don't know the rules. I don't have the law. And in chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, Paul responds, all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before their God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are now a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either sometimes accuse them or sometimes excuse them. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my good news through Messiah Jesus. Okay, so let me clarify something about the law at this point where you see the law. He keeps saying that, right? The law could refer in one sense to most of the Old Testament scriptures known as, as Jesus says, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So in one sense, it's all the Old Testament. Even more broadly at times, In the first century and before, the law could be seen as all of those guidelines that were even given by rabbis and scribes in addition to God's prescribed law. But what I think Paul is probably most often meaning by the law in Romans was Torah. The Jews called it Torah. It was the first five books of our Bibles. And it was a key badge of Jewish identity, that they had that law from God through Moses. And so with that in mind, those first five books of the Bible, that narrowly conceived portion of the law, let me now draw your attention to Paul's twice repeated charge, whether or not you have the law of God, namely all sin, verse 12. Paul here is quite clear, as he will say later in chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of this, chapter 3, verse 19, every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. And Paul is saying that that is true for those with the law, without the law, and for those who have the law. And even while Paul describes that Jews have the law and Gentiles don't, he goes on to say that there is a sense in which those who do not have the law still have the law. (laughs) Well, that's confusing and doesn't seem fair. And so we should ask, well, how is that possible? How can you say they don't have the law, yet they have the law, Paul? Well, says Paul... Gentiles still end up stumbling into doing the law, verse 14. There is a degree to which it is written on their hearts, verse 15. They have a conscience, an inner motivation to do what is right, verse 15. Even unbelievers are made in the image of God and therefore reflect some of his goodness if through a glass darkly. And so, not all human beings are crooks and thieves and adulterers and murderers. On the contrary, some of them honor their parents, recognize the sanctity of human life, are loyal to their spouses, practice honesty, speak the truth, and cultivate contentment. Couldn't we all admit that we know some non-Christians who are actually better than some of the Christians that we know? It's true! Thus, Paul's response to those who would object to the judgment of God on their sin, even while they do not have the law as defined by the first five books of the Bible is this. Here's his response. In the same way that you know there is a God, see 118, you know the law and you have it within you. And so you too are without excuse. To which we might now imagine the Jew, who's standing and listening to this argument, saying, well, I mean, that's fine for the Gentiles, Paul, but we are the Jews. I mean, we are God's special and chosen people among all of humanity in this world. We do have the law, thank you very much, Paul, and we bear the mark of circumcision, so we are not under judgment like the rest of the world, Mike dropped stage left. Take that, Paul. To which Paul says in verses 17 to 20, uh, hey, wait a minute, not so fast. Get back here. I can actually talk about this really well because I am a Jew myself. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews trained in the law under Gamaliel. I am circumcised. I am one of you. And like you, I had the same defense that you are now making for most of my life. I know what it's like to be so self-confident in my perceived Jewishness, but let me tell you, I was so wrong. And so are you. So let me deal with each of these defenses that you are giving in turn to think that you have an excuse before God because you have the law. You see verses 17 to 20 now. This is why you have to have your Bibles open. Okay, so see where I'm getting this from. Paul says, you call yourself a Jew. I get that. You're proud of the chosen people's honorable name that God gave to us. And you rely, you depend on, you lean on the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And you trust in your mere possession of it as a shield against judgment and wrath. You boast in God with a kind of swagger that implies you've cornered the market on a relationship with Him, unavailable to lesser foreigners and non-Jews. You also know His will. I grant you that. I can see that you're not casual about Judaism. You take this seriously. You know what God expressed, and you observe His rights and decrees. In addition... You approve the things that are superior, which is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. You know what is excellent. It has informed your moral compass. And the reason that that compass can point true north at times is because you are being instructed from the law. It's content informing your moral discernment. And this has led you to being convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, and a teacher of the immature. Again, this is not a bad thing, my friend. This is who God called us to be and intended us to live out as those who should be a light to the nations, the Gentiles, who do not have what we were given. We are the missionaries. We're the ones sent out by God, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. But, but just when this stand-in Jew and all of those Jews in Rome's reading this and identifying with Paul and all of us who may not be Jews but for which all these arguments could be made against us, relying on our religion and its rights, baptism, communion, attending church, giving a certain amount of money. Just when the Jew and us feel like Paul is on our side and his objection that the law gives him an out for the judgment of God, Paul immediately turns the tables. And he does so in almost the same way that he's already done for the pagan moralist in verses 1 to 11. And we see it in chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. He calls out this kind of stand-in as a hypocrite with four rhetorical questions. And we know, right, family, what we do with rhetorical questions, right? We turn them into statements. They're not meant that the answer is assumed, so using this one person as an identifier for a whole community, for a whole community who is collectively guilty of all of these sins, listen as Paul gives the battering ram of his evidence. You teach another. So of course, you teach yourself. But the problem is, You fail to live up to your self-instruction. You do not live up to the knowledge that you have found in the law. You preach, don't steal, but you do not practice what you preach and steal. You say, do not commit adultery, and yet your ranks are thick with adultery, both of the marital sort, stepping out on your wives, often just in your thoughts and sometimes in your actions, and of the spiritual sort, in your sin, adulterating your relationship to your most holy body, bridegroom God as his covenantal bride, Israel. You detest idols, but you rob temples. You think that just because the temples are filled with false gods, that those treasures are an affront to God? And so you have the right to go into those temples and steal those treasures in the name of God. But robbery is robbery, my friend. And finally, you boast in the law, but there is none Righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, not even one. And you know that this is no petty offense. This doesn't make you some small-time criminal deserving of a slap on the wrist. When you break the word of God, you dishonor the person and the righteousness of God. And this is a horrible state of affairs says Paul. You know what my contemporary Rabbi Yochanan ben Zachai has complained of us, of the increase of murder and adultery and sexual vice, commercial and judicial corruption, bitter sectarian strife, and other evils that infect our people like a disease. There is no end. We are all sick. It is just as Isaiah prophesied. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you your failure to receive the law as God intended, to live it out as he decreed, has brought his name into disrepute. You have not brought about his rightness because you have not kept the law. And so, says Paul, you are without excuse. To which the embattled Jew says, okay, okay, okay. I can, maybe I can grant you that, Paul. But we are circumcised. We bear the mark of God's people for pity's sake. We hold in our flesh, literally, all that we need, Paul. To which Paul levels this near final bring you to your knees response in verse 25 to 27. Yes, says Paul. Circumcision does benefit you if, if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision therefore be counted as circumcision? He's talking about Gentile there a man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision now i'm telling you it is i think it's almost impossible for us to understand how absolutely shocking and devastating and world altering these 3 verses were to a jew in paul's day they would have been absolutely shattering because they are striking at the very identity of those who see themselves as part of the family of God, it is. This, it would be as if I had spent my entire life identifying as Matthew Molesky, son from the flesh of Georgine Molesky, and then tomorrow someone tells me, "You know what? Actually, Georgine adopted you. You you aren't part of her family." line and all of a sudden everything that i thought i knew about myself and my family and who i was in that family gets called into question in my mind it would shatter my world it would it would upend everything that i thought was true for most of my life all of my life you see for centuries jews had looked askance at uncircumcised pagans sitting in judgment on them. But Paul explains that those same pagans may sit in a place of judgment on them. This, despite the Jews having the letter of the law and circumcision. John Stott. In this way, Paul has declared that the ultimate sign The bona fide evidence of membership of the covenant of God is neither circumcision nor possession of the law, but the obedience which both circumcision and the law demanded. Their circumcision did not make them what their disobedience proved they were not. Let me say that again. Their circumcision did not make them what their disobedience proved they were not. And this is not salvation by obedience, but obedience as the evidence of salvation, which means that the Jews are just as much exposed to the wrath and judgment of God as the Gentiles are. They are without excuse. To which we may then say, okay then, Paul, good night. How am I made right? We've arrived where I said we would. The law has exposed and condemned our sin, brought us on our knees to the end of ourselves so that we may be open and ready to hear the good news of being made right, justified by God, rescued and saved by God because we cannot do this by ourselves. Rescue cannot come from within us but must come from, without, from outside of us. This is what the sustained battering ram of Paul's argument and evidence has done. It has at the end here, redefined Jewish identity, which means he's redefining the identity of all humanity. And it is just a peak. This little bit here at the end, it's just a peek into what he's going to expand on in Romans 9 to 11. So jump ahead. Read Romans 9 to 11 this afternoon. And what Paul is doing here and there is describing what it means to be a true Jew, not an ethnic, geographical, or political Jew, but a true Jew, a, excuse me, a spiritual Jew, and thus a safe and secure member of God's covenant family. So when we ask, how how do I obtain a transformed and righteous heart, Paul? He answers, verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one, outwardly and true circumcision circumcision is not something visible in your flesh on the contrary a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit not the letter that person's praise so transformed is not from people but from God and it's been my prayer this week that at this point in Paul's argument that this would be a massive relief and a remarkable reminder for how you might live with joy and hope despite the shadowy darkness of all of our wrongness in the blinding light of Yahweh God's rightness. Because God has done the necessary transplant work to reach in and make this Cold, hard, sinful heart, alive in him, ready to receive his presence and his guidance. You know, it's like that other deeply theological story that we all know at Christmas where it is said, well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. This is a work that we cannot do. In the same way that we cannot perform a physical heart transplant on ourselves, we cannot perform a spiritual heart transplant on ourselves. But God is willing to, and it is the way that it has always been. This concept is not new with Paul. This isn't new in Romans. He hasn't come upon something revolutionary that's never been said before. God himself, in the law itself, complains of his people's uncircumcised hearts. He appeals to them to circumcise their hearts and then promises that he will do it himself. It's right there in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. Many of us have read the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel who pick up on this promise of Yahweh in the law and describe that those, those that are not true Jews as uncircumcised in heart with God promising to make them true Jews by doing that inner work. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and I will cause you to follow all my statutes and carefully observe all of my ordinances and you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness to which we say, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Yahweh! Thank you for doing this work that I cannot do. And do not miss Paul's crystal-clear, contrasting declaration. I'm so grateful that the seminary taught me Greek so that I could see that Paul is a hip-hop artist and he rhymes when he talks. "In Numati u Gramati." In spirit, not." letter. You need to write that at the top of this page in your Bible. In spirit, not letter. This is the only way, family, that we can be made without excuse before a holy and righteous God. In spirit and not letter. Do not try and take this work back from God when he has done this work in you. I was at a Christmas concert last night with some dear friends from here, Grace, with some dear friends who were singing in this Christmas concert. And they, they started doing some song that, actually, I asked my wife to text the program to me. I had an iPad up here, let's see if she did. And she did. The song was Dona Nobes Pacem. Pacem there in Latin, means peace, in peace, and I was moved in that moment as the conductor was describing what that song was going to be about and as the ston- song started to be sung, I started thinking about this morning in this text from Paul, started thinking about God and Jesus and the Spirit and peace, peace because isn't that what we want? Don't you want to be at rest? You don't want to be at, it's not fun to be in conflict with people, is it? And it's definitely not fun to be in conflict with God. And this song made me think about all of Paul's arguments all leading to a new heart, getting us to the point to cry out for the mercy to help us in our woundedness and our brokenness and in our sin. And I started to think like how absolutely helpless we are and lost without God moving towards us. It makes me think right now of that passage. I think it's in Ezekiel where he says, I was walking by you and you were like this baby laying on the side of the road in your birth blood and you, you did nothing you could do for yourself. And I decided to come over and to make you mine and to clean you off and to make you a part of my family. Sometimes we're we're so tied up in all of our sin and all of our weaknesses that we just can't do anything for ourselves. Have you ever felt at the absolute end of yourself to change or improve or fix it or get better? Anybody? Goodness gracious. That thing that you just, you can't get right inside of you. And what is your response in that moment of self-revelation? Is it that you can do it? Got to figure out how to get better. Maybe to look at those around you that are a little worse than you. And since I can't fix this, I'll make myself better because look how bad they are. At least I'm not them. Or to focus on, to frantically look about at all of your own resources to change what's wrong in your life. Or maybe you just give in to the frustration and you give up. Like I just, I can't, I can't change. And what if as painful as it may be, what if the whole point of that kind of wrestling and that kind of internal struggle is to get you to the point where you realize you need to come to the end of yourself? To realize that you can't do it yourself that you need to turn to someone else for help. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes in the whole world, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Rest in him, rest in him and him alone, gloriously complete. You are complete. If you believe in Jesus, you have everything that you need and he will do the work. What if God brings you, brings us through those painful moments to just be reminded, worship team, would you come up? To be reminded that all we have really is Christ. You're about to stand and sing a song that has lyrics Once was lost in darkest night and thought, I thought I knew the way. The sin that had promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. As I ran my hellbound race indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state Would you please just lay all your strength and pride down this morning? You are helpless. You really are. And you led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. And now all I know is grace. And Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see that the strength, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. So Father, do your gracious will. And let me see and use my ransom life in any way that you choose. Let's just give up. (laughs) But let's turn to him as we do, shall we?